Hello, everybody. I am so excited to announce that Startup CPG now has an official Amazon agency partner we think is the best fit for emerging brands. They're called Daybreak Agency. They're led by Leon Lewis, who has years of experience growing CPG brands. Based on recommendations from the community, I personally actually worked with Leon and the Daybreak team for my previous beverage brand, and I was super thrilled with the results. He is absolutely a great fit for brands in the community. In my view, his team is the most affordable and most effective option out there. They will fix up your listing and get you set up with the right creative. And they have a much more reasonable retainer structure than most agencies I've come across. I've seen crazy retainers like 5000 a month and that stuff that's just really not affordable for emerging brands. But his retainer is super affordable and he does incredible work. He will manage your operations, advertising, deal with the most challenging aspects of getting you set up on Amazon. And he actually also does other channels like Instacart and Critio. Their team has years of experience across all of CPG, and I'm super confident that you're going to love working with them. If you want to reach out to him, you can message him on the Startup CPG Slack, Leon Lewis, Daybreak Growth, or email him at leon at daybreak.agency. Make sure you mention Startup CPG to get $600 of free design credits. Hop water is a sparkling water infused with hops. So we take hops, we extract the oils and the essence, all the flavor. We infuse that into a sparkling water. So it's zero calorie, no carbs. And then we've added a functional stack of ingredients, ashwagandha, L-theanine, as well as vitamin C. So you get a mood boosting benefit as well as some immunity benefit. Um, and that's the product. Um, I can talk more about use cases, <clears throat> how we came up with it, et cetera. But uh, at the base level, it's a hoppy sparkling water and it's delicious. Hello, Startup CPGers. Welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Daniel Scharf. Today's episode is a doozy. We've got Jordan Bass from Hop Water. What I loved about this episode is that it is a really nice, tight summary of Jordan's journey from starting Hop Water during the pandemic with his co-founder, Nick, leveraging his deep e-commerce background, and then both pioneering and riding an extremely disruptive force in the industry today, which is the growth of non-alk options and functional beverage. There are a ton of lessons learned here. I hope you're taking notes and enjoy this behind the scenes view into the growth of hop water. Enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Startup CPG podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Scharf. Today on the podcast, we are thrilled to welcome Jordan Bass, CEO and co-founder of Hop Water. Jordan's expertise in advanced technology, clean tech, and sustainability has fueled the success of this innovative beverage. Jordan has a really interesting background, starting in venture capital, later honing his e-commerce skills at the wonderful company and Fiji Water. Jordan is a trailblazer and proven innovator. Jordan, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with us to unfold the story behind Hop Water. So welcome to the show, and let's just jump right in. Do you mind just telling us a little bit about how you got your start in the CP? world? Yeah, absolutely. Daniel, thanks for having me. I love the hot puns right away. Pleasure to be here. So yeah, got my start in the CPG world working for the wonderful company, which was an incredible training grounds. The company is very well run. I learned so much there. Got to see kind of like what good looks like and then was able to apply that to hot water and my career. All right. Awesome. So I, in front of me, have a couple different cans of hop water. I have got the, I think, original blue can here. And then I also have 
I think there's the blood orange I think that I have here. And then I also have the mango, all of which are super delicious. You guys sent me some samples. I have been sipping them obsessively. Can you just tell me, like, just talk me through if, like, for somebody who's never had it before, like, what am I tasting as I'm drinking this? For sure. Well, I will also crack a can of our peach hop water to make sure I can enjoy with you. Cheers. Yeah, cheers. So hop water is a sparkling water infused with hops. So we take hops, we extract the oils and the acids, all the flavor. We infuse that into a sparkling water. So it's zero calorie, no carbs. And then we've added a functional stack of ashwagandha, L-theanine, as well as vitamin C. So you get a mood boosting benefit as well as some immunity benefit. And that's the product. Um, I can talk more about use cases, how we came up with it, et cetera. But at the base level, it's a hoppy sparkling water and it's delicious. Okay. Yes. And I do want to talk about all of that stuff. First though, if an alien came to earth and you had to explain to them what a hop is, which is my way of saying, please explain it to me because I don't really know. What would you, how, what is a hop? For sure. So hops are a plant. Uh, they're the main flavor agent used in beers. So when you talk about an IPA, it's because they have a lot of hops in them. Uh, so it is a flavor, a little green kind of bud, and and they're delicious. Okay, cool. And so, what, and what was the environment in which you decided to use hops in water? Like what was going on at the time, either in the industry or just with you personally that led you to decide to try to make hop water? Yeah, absolutely. So my co-founder, Nick, and I love drinking beer. Like we grew up in the time when craft beers were really flourishing. You know, Sierra Nevada and Lagunitas and all these guys were kind of coming up. And we found that as we were getting busier and older, there was just like a bunch of occasions where we loved that occasion of drinking beer, but we didn't want the alcohol or the calories or carbs. And Nick and I were buddies here in LA. We were hanging out. We'd watch football on Sundays together, get kind of friends and family together. And, you know, we'd oftentimes have like a big meeting the next day or have to get home and crank on a presentation for something or want to go have Sunday dinner with our family and didn't want to have three or four beers on that Sunday afternoon, but like still loved that occasion of getting together and like cracking a cold one. And we found that having LaCroix is like, wasn't that satisfying we found that a bunch of the non-app products on the market, when you looked at non-app beers at the time, didn't taste that good. They still had a bunch of calories and carbs. So it didn't really align with our health and fitness routine when we were kind of like not drinking. And we said, look, like, I think we can come up with something better here. We really developed it for ourselves, then launched it. And we're fortunate that we saw a lot of other people had the same use case. And so, you know, I think it is such an interesting product because it really like fits in the middle of a bunch of different things. And even as somebody who drinks it and enjoy it, I still don't know exactly how to categorize it to people. So like, you know, your consumers, what are they shopping for when they pick this up? Are they shopping for sparkling waters or are they just people who love the taste of beer and they know they can't drink it all the time? So they are shopping for this instead. Yeah, I think like to that point, there's a lot of different use cases for the product and it has a broad ranging appeal. I think first and foremost, we're beer forward. And, you know, that's how we came up with the product and our primary placement in store, et cetera, which we can talk about. And what we found as the product got into the market was consumers were just using it throughout the day. And it made us super bullish on the opportunity because while we came up with it and one of our first ads was actually like a hand holding a beer and it said kind of like your new 5 p.m. So like that was like the initial use case was that, you know, beer replacement. But we found that consumers were enjoying the product throughout the day. It was a lunchtime treat. It was a morning refreshment. And that gave us a ton of conviction to just say like, okay, we've got an even broader 
mainstream product on our hands than we initially anticipated. Got it. Okay. And so I think there's so much to go into here. But first, how is it different than a LaCroix, for example, if you think, you know, they're obviously one of the pioneers who really have exploded the sparkling water category. How is it different from an ingredient perspective? And then also like, yeah, why is a consumer going to choose hop water instead of LaCroix? For sure. Well, first of all, I would say to everyone listening to this, go out and try one and you can judge for yourself why it's different than a LaCroix. But if you look at kind of LaCroix and some of those other ones, like, and you look at like flavor chains in general, we see and we think that like consumers are getting sick of like your same old triple berry, whatever. And they're looking for more sophisticated flavors. And really that's what hop water delivers. Hops are a unique taste. They're a little more herbaceous. They bring some citrus notes to them, some pine notes to them. Pairs really well with flavors, but it gives a consumer an opportunity to have a more sophisticated experience. So that's one. It really like, we like to say, if you squint with one eye closed, it reminds you of your favorite IPA. There's like these really nice notes of what you would get from a hoppy beer, especially if you try our classic flavor, or we just launched a new flavor that's dry hopped that really give you this like hoppy experience and can really fill that sort of craving for a hoppy beer. Yeah, it's, for me, it's, it's pretty interesting just as somebody, I had not had hop water before the last couple of months. And just as I'm drinking now and thinking about it, feels sort of like if I compare it to LaCroix, it has more substance to it. Like there is a deeper, satisfying kind of kick to it. Just me personally, when I drink a LaCroix, the flavors that they use, the natural flavors come in pretty hot. Just tastes like more artificial I mean, well, just, you know, between us and everybody listening, I always had this suspicion that it made me feel a little funny too. But, you know, I think with hop water, I think that's the first thing I notice when I drink the classic flavor is it just like, it's refreshing, but there's depth to it. You know, there's something there that makes you feel like you're drinking something that's authentic and interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we intentionally wanted the flavor profile to be approachable. I mean, Unless you're like a triple hop head and hops on their own in to an extreme degree can be an intense flavor profile. And we wanted it to be more moderate uh, so that it could be more approachable. And you could drink multiple of them in a sitting or throughout the day or at an occasion. And that's what we see from our consumers is that they're telling us that they drink the product multiple times a week. They drink multiple per serving. It's a nice, sophisticated, differentiated flavor, but it's also approachable and refreshing and thirst quenching, as you talked about. And so, you know, I think I'm not a beer expert, but I do have a sense that trends have changed in the beer industry, like, you know, the IPA craze now, I think maybe has given, has yielded a bit to like more lighter stuff like lagers, Kolsch's, I don't know. But do you see those tastes changing and how does that impact people's preference for, let's say, your different flavors? Like who's going to choose hop water or who's going to then tend more towards some of the flavors that you guys have? Yeah, I think if you look at the data in the beer industry, the non-alc segment is one of the hottest and fastest growing segments of the entire beer industry. And, you know, we're seeing this kind of like moderation trend. You asked about like who's drinking it. I think over the last few years, one of the things that's really cool that we're seeing is that this consumer is really like everyone. It's not the consumer that said, look, I'm not going to drink anymore. I'm totally abstaining. No, that is a consumer. That's a great customer for us. And we love to provide them a product that helps them there. But the big opportunity and what we see is that folks, like you said, you like beer, like me, like I enjoy drinking beer still, but I just 
there's a lot of occasions where I want a non-alcohol alternative and I want a great non-alcohol alternative. I don't want to have to sacrifice when I'm not drinking and still want something that like is really satisfying. And so that's the consumer that we're seeing. Well, sometimes we'll say it's like your Thursday or your Sunday through Thursday beverage. So like you want to take your Sunday off or Tuesday or whatever it is, and you still want to do all the same things. Maybe you're going to meet your friends out. Maybe you're just having that 30 minutes at the end of a long work day to relax and hang out. You don't want to give up on that satisfying feeling, but you want something that's kind of not okay. We think that's like a huge opportunity with a lot of years of runway for the brand. I totally agree with you. And listeners to the podcast will have seen that I did an episode recently with actually my cousin, who was one of the original microbrew guys. He pioneered one called Schlafly, which was one of the first craft breweries in the Midwest doing it in Anheuser-Busch's backyard. And he's now, you know, has more of a global view on it. He works with the World Brewers Alliance and sees all of the trends from the different countries. And for sure, I mean, before talking to him, but also afterwards, I've never been more convinced that that the non-alc beer category is just ripe for explosion that also just general alk consumption coming down flowing i think largely into the non-alk beer but then also functional beverage which you sit in both of i think so it's such an important social moment that occasion of like sitting down with your buddy or by yourself and cracking a cold one i don't think that's going away from a consumer standpoint you talked about the kind of like international trends i mean when you look at germany i haven't looked at these data in the last couple of months, but I think it, the, the percentages still prove out, you know, it's something like 12 to 15% of sales are non-out beer. That is in like the mecca of beer drinking. And so it's like that occasion hasn't gone away. The consumer is just picking up alternatives and it's clear that they're like mixing it in with out and non-out. So today the non-out beer category is like 1% of the total category in the US. And if you look at some of those as leading indicators, maybe we don't get all the way to 15%. But like there's like multifold growth opportunity here for what is like a hundred billion dollar category. Totally agree. And everybody that I talk to sees it firsthand with their friends. Like, yeah, a lot of my friends are changing their consumption and looking for non-alc options. I really like the non-alc beer options just because I think because beer is lower ABV that taking the actual alcohol out of there, you still get something that can be really close. But as you said, like you have a couple different kind of use cases. So, I mean, yeah, what percentage of people who are buying hop water are buying it to consume at a social event or in place of a beer at the end of the night versus just kind of doing what I did, which is throw a 12 pack in the fridge and drink it during the day, during the week I'm working at home. I'm just sipping on it in the place of a sparkling water and really enjoying it. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, we see that kind of in place of an alcoholic drink whether it's social or relaxing as the top usage occasions. So those are definitely leading. But to your point, as a refreshing beverage, you know, we see a lot of consumers enjoying the product that way. And one of the number one things or one of the most common things that consumers say about the brand is that it's refreshing. So again, you can imagine all of those occasions, whether it's just sipping on it through the afternoon or in place of, of your 5 p.m. as we originally started. So, yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's so interesting to me. And I feel like as the consumer, you also kind of can figure that out and figure out how it works best with your lifestyle. So how about the marketing aspect of it? You know, so probably most people listening to this have seen a can, but if not, definitely encourage you to look it up on the Hopwater website or Google image search. And like, what was important to you when you were actually doing the design or if you ever did kind of a rebrand, you know, what were you going for? What were the key elements that you really wanted people to pick up on? Or what is the feedback that you get on it? 
Yeah, great question. I mean, look, we wanted something distinctive. I mean, you look at the beverage category and it's like a crowded category. There's a lot of different designs that have been done and there's a lot of different products that look the same. So we wanted something that was unique. And actually, fun story, when we originally started the brand, Nick and I were concepting it and we're working with our designer and we came up with a couple of different designs. We actually did like very inexpensive online survey with two different can designs. And one of them was the current design or very close to it. And the other one was kind of like a much safer design, looked like one of the existing kind of brands out there a little bit or had elements. I mean, it was differentiated, but was like a much more established design. And they actually both scored pretty similarly on the survey. And so it kind of came down to like a gut call and we had shown it to a couple of our friends and, and a few of our friends didn't like the current design. They were like, no, go with the other one. And Nick and I kind of walked away and our gut feel was like, we loved this design. And we're like, you know what? Let's just do it. Like we're risk takers. We're starting a, a company. It's what we should do. And we went with it. And to a T, like the brand feedback has been super positive. It was 100% the right call. I love it. I think it's incredibly distinctive. And I mean, just at least the way that I feel about the brand is it's kind of like, yeah, half sparkling water, half something else that's kind of interesting. And that is exactly what the design looks like. You know, in the bottom half of the can, you have the wavy blue lines. In the top half, there is bold piece of color. So uh, yeah, for me, it, it really resonates. I'm obviously a huge fan of the product. And so remind us again, when did you guys first launch into the market and where were you launching? Yeah. So we launched in late 2020, the heart of COVID. It was a crazy time to launch a beverage brand. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listening probably also launched in a similar period and had to navigate those challenging waters. You asked about kind of where and how we launched. The standard CPG or beverage playbook is to go to the on-premise, build your brand that way, get recognition, and then build in the off-premise. And you know, when we were first concepting this pre the pandemic, we were going to roll out that kind of same way. And that was one of our first kind of pivots. Obviously, the pandemic hit and going on-premise wasn't an option for us. And just to define that for people who don't know, and then this would be kind of more of a playbook for BevAlk, right? Like, sure. Yeah, well, like, yeah, beverage in general, but definitely BevAlk for sure. Okay, so on-premise, meaning like the pl places that you go and buy the product and actually drink there like a bar. Art, yeah, exactly. Yeah, cafes. Versus off-premise, meaning like you're going to buy it and then go drink it at home like a grocery store. Yeah, so on-premise, bars, restaurants, cafes, et cetera, where, to your point, anywhere you drink it on, off, basically think of it as like retail grocery stores. And so when we weren't able to leverage the on-premise, we said, okay, well, and the key there is that the reason that on-premise is important is because consumers typically need to like try a beverage. They need to get familiar and introduced to it before they commit to buying the six-pack or a 12-pack and investing that, those kind of dollars. So we knew that we needed consumers to be able to trial the product and we needed to access them quickly. We could have just gone straight to the off-premise and done displays and stuff like that of other ways of driving. But also, if you remember back to that time, retailers were really not looking at new products. They were really focused on getting bread and milk and eggs on the shelf, which like, I don't blame them. That's the right thing to do. They needed to get those staples to consumers and supply chains were very challenging. So almost all the resets were either canceled or delayed. So we chose to launch online and we could get directly to our consumers quickly. Obviously at that time, online was also a area where there was a lot of consumer traction. And that was really valuable for us because it gave us the initial consumer insights, the initial access to the consumer 
we quickly followed that with launching in the off-premise. We started with Erewhon here in Los Angeles, where I am, and then built into other natural foods retailers that have a little bit more rolling kind of resets versus the larger retailers. And then we started building from there. And we will be right back. Hey, listeners, are you working on your email and SMS marketing strategy and not getting the results you're looking for? Or do you wish you had a little more time and a lot more resources? Don't worry, Strategy Maven has your back. Building a successful strategy is no easy task, but their mavens or experts will help you establish an email and SMS marketing program that will attract, engage, and retain customers to help grow your brand. SMA is a perfect partner for you if you're not getting the results you're looking for, or your overall email attributed revenue is less than 30%, or you have way too much on your plate and not enough resources, or you started with another agency or freelancer and they dropped the ball. Strategy Maven Agency treats your brand as if it was their own. They provide the expertise and support your business needs to scale and thrive. Visit strategymavenagency.com to get started with a free consultation. And don't forget to mention Startup CPG. And now back to the show. Okay. And so, Jordan, you have an incredible e-commerce background. What did you know that really helped you to find your consumers in the early days, or what were some of the insights that helped you do it in a cost-effective way, find the people that Hopwater was really going to appeal to? Yeah, that's a great question. And we were fortunate that way. Nick and I both have a background in the online space. So we were able to roll out the e-commerce playbook pretty quickly and ramp the business really like right away in the e-commerce space. Because again, we just there was not much learning there. We knew the best practices. Uh, what are they? <laughs> What's the e-commerce playbook? I don't know. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of them. And, and we could maybe do another full podcast on the e-com playbook. But, you know, look, you want to, there's obviously specific paid media channels that work really well. You really want to also make sure that your messaging and your creative and that your organic uh, is building and you're not just doing paid alone. And I think the double clicking in there to the creative and the tagline side of things, that's become a increasingly important area of digital marketing period, but e-commerce specifically as the algorithms have gotten, like as things have changed, privacy requirements and whatnot, CPMs, which is like the measure of the ad costs have gone up. I'd say really need to focus on creative. And, and we were fortunate we did that in the early days. We actually did a lot of testing and I would encourage anyone here to test different types of creative, test different types of taglines to optimize your because it's really about your creative winning and that's what kind of like wins on these platforms not only that but the other thing that's really beneficial about doing that and we use successful in the early days is it gave us insights into what resonated with consumers about talking about our brand and that's invaluable for a new brand figuring out like what are my consumers respond to got it okay and you mentioned merchandising before then once you did get into shelves or how do you think about it these days, like if you can pick where you're going to be merchandised, exactly where and what's going to be next to you, what is it? Yeah, I mean, we have the benefit of being able to sit in a lot of places in the store. You'll oftentimes find us in the beer aisle, and that is a great place for us. But we can sit throughout the store. We can sit in the functional beverage space. We can sit in the water section, and we're able to leverage all of those placements pretty effectively, depending on the retailer and the pack size and whatnot. Okay, got it. And so I just think this is going to be one of the most interesting spaces in all of CPG to watch is what's going to happen in non-alc beer, what are the innovations that are going to come, what are consumer preferences going to look like. 
Do you have any predictions and things that you're really paying attention to? I mean, look, I think this category has a long runway. I think to your point, there's we're already seen it in consumer preferences. I think not only in out to non-out, but in the calorie kind of content and the macros. You alluded to it earlier with like consumers shifting from heavy IPAs to lagers. I think that trend's been going on. The seltzer trend was part of that. So I think you're going to see that continued betterment trend. And that is a long-term macro trend that's going to play out. The other thing I think that's really interesting for our category with non-out, but also that betterment trend that I talked about, is when you look at the younger generations, younger millennials and Gen Z, like they over-index in both their purchasing and reporting of looking for products with those types of characteristics. So there's this huge demographic wave that's coming that's going to like further accelerate and I think carry these trends over many years and, and maybe decades. Okay, got it. So I guess just tracing back then. So once you started launching into retail, what were some of the big milestones for you? And as that's happening, how much of your energy continues to go into the online channel versus really focusing on succeeding at retail? Yeah, for sure. Well, there's been a lot of milestones along the way. I mean, you know, thinking about getting originally, like I talked about, we started the natural channel and then we were able to get opportunities with some of the kind of like crossover accounts that are natural, but a little bit more conventional and then moved into conventional and into mass retailers. And those were all big milestones along the way for us. And, you know, now I think most of my focus is on building our wholesale and retail business. We're, we're majority wholesale. And that's really where the scale comes from. The e-commerce business is still super important for us. It drives a lot of consumer awareness. It drives paid sampling. They're some of our most loyal consumers and we're able to speak directly to them, test new products with them, get direct feedback from those consumers and have a relationship there. And then we're able to leverage those consumers as we launch new retailers. But that's really our focus and where our scale is uh, or where the scale opportunity is, is in retail. I know we talked about it a little bit in the early days, but like, yeah, as you're unlocking the new retailers, what are you doing that you think is really successful to get on people's radars at this is the country where you haven't been and marketing a bunch? Like, you know, is it mainly the packaging that you're relying on or are you doing demos? Are you focusing on price promotions? What's kind of your like top one, two, three things to do to start getting velocities churning? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's also a, a playbook that we've developed over time there. But I think to hit your top one, two, three on things that we're doing that are successful, liquid to lips, we talked about in the beginning, like consumers need to try the product. You kind of said, okay, well, consumers could try it and then integrate it into their life. We see that, you know, consumers might try it as an alternative to their favorite beer and then find that they enjoy drinking the product throughout the day. So getting consumers to trial is the most important thing. Displays are incredibly effective. I mean, that is not only increases your velocity, but then also acts as a branding opportunity in the store. And we can directly see in the data when we have more secondary displays, the velocity goes up. So that's a huge one. And then third, really leveraging any type of community that you have to get that initial velocity going. We talked about commerce business. We built this incredible community of loyal Hopwater fans and consumers on our e-commerce business. And every time we launch a new retailer, we tell those consumers, hey, look, it's now available in your favorite local retailer. And they kind of rush to the store and help to drive that initial velocity. So those are three important tactics that we use to get velocity going. Got it. And 
Yeah, I mean, any special things you've learned just about retail sales in general? And I'll also just give a quick shout out to somebody on your team, Sam, who I've known just from industry events. He's one of your sales guys. I have learned a lot from just from watching him, especially at distributor sales shows. Just kind of like watched him and how he actually talks to people at the show and gets a deal done right there. And he actually taught me how to submit turnover forms yourself to the distributors so that usually at distributor shows, you have a deal and you're saying, hey, like, Five months from now, you can place an order and you can get a 30% discount or whatever. But he was actually the one that taught me, like, take that order right now. If you're going to give them the discount, you can give it to them right now and put the order in yourself. Here's the form that you do. And then I had heard from other people who know him, like, watch him. He knows how to actually go through the next steps with retailers and get them locked in. So I personally learned a lot from him. But I'm wondering, is that a cultural thing that you have at your organization or, yeah, any other kind of sales tips? Because, you know, from my perspective, you guys just have been kind of a rocket ship as a brand. So, you know, is there other secret sauce there around retail sales? Yeah, Sam is the man. He is constantly hustling. He's a great guy. We're, We're lucky to have him on the team. You know, look, I think there's a lot of them, you know, there's the playbook and executing really well. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about, like figuring out those tips on how you execute super well. And we are constantly talking about that. And I think that is the ethos of our culture at the company is like just making sure that you're super dialed in and you're executing at a high level. I do think there's, I love the quote that like vision without execution is hallucination and you can have like the best vision and product idea but if you can't execute it it doesn't really matter so we definitely talk about that a lot the other thing that i think is really important and and sam exemplifies it and and many others on the team do is just like finding a solution when you run into a wall find a way to go over it around it etc i mean it's like it's startup kind of 101 but you have to live and breathe that every single day we in fact sam and i were just on the phone talking about an opportunity and how we were going to exactly do that. So it's something that like never stops. And frankly, I find it fun. It's a puzzle, but you've got to have that in your culture and constantly be pushing it. Okay, got it. <laughs> Very good. So, you know, it, while you've had all of this great success, are there any things that you look back on the early days? Like, man, I wish we had fixed that sooner or figured that out earlier or switched strategies or changed art or not gone after a certain kind of customer or anything like that from the early days? There's certainly a lot of stories. I mean, some of them were situational. And I think like for like in the early days, you couldn't even get cans. And so I would have like done that a lot differently. We were literally like making phone calls, like you're making a drug deal and someone's like calling you. They're like, I got a truckload of cans. Like I need cash now. Do you want it? Like, yes, like I'll meet you here, you know, whatever. (laughs) It was just like everyone was like trying to hustle to not shut down their production line. So that's one of them. But like in the very early days, like I didn't realize how long it took. It's kind of like this is probably beverage and startup 101, but I just didn't realize how long it took to get set up with the distributors. And we would like go in and get a yes from a retailer. And then it was 90 or 120 days or even longer to get set up with a distributor. So anyone that is thinking about launching a brand i would just encourage you like there are real timelines and you have to get ahead of those i mean same thing with the retailer resets like these retailers are working a long way out and they should be they have tens of thousands of products and they're working sometimes 12 months out so you've got to like adhere your business to their schedule and make sure that you're planning far enough in advance which is not necessarily what most startups do but the sooner you learn that lesson the better off you'll be 
Yeah, makes sense. For me, you know, having run a beverage company for a couple of years, getting the chance to at least like do a pilot run to get sales samples as far in advance as possible was very helpful. Even if you don't, it's expensive and you don't run through all the cans, but at least just have something to like send to the company that needs to take the picture of your product to get you into a data system, which then unlocks a retailer being able to like actually add you to their system, which then lets the distributor start putting you in their system. Like all of these, it's like Zelda sometimes like, oh, you need the red key for the blue wizard castle. Like you have to do all this stuff. So the earlier you can start, the better. And then, yeah, just going back to like, so, you know, your skill set before starting was so deep in e-commerce to then get into retail. Were you, did you feel like you knew enough to just kind of jump in or maybe knew some stuff that you felt like would help you come up with the right retail strategy? Or did you lean on mentors or bring in a specific kind of skill set just to like feel like you were going in the right direction? Yeah, good question. Combination of a few things, you know, I felt like being around a great CPG company, I was able to pick up enough about retail that I had the basic building blocks. But beyond that, it was really like partnering with or hiring great people. And we had advisors along the way, in the early days that were able to provide us direction. We hired some great people that knew the playbook. And I think like stepping back and just thinking about being running a, a company or really at any level within a company running a team, it's really important to understand what you're good at and what you're not good at and then bring people in around you, whether they're on your team or they're partners to you in the organization that can supplement. Like no one has every piece of knowledge. That's why you build great teams because together you're stronger. So I think we did a pretty effective job of filling in the gaps with like great partners and team members. And so who's in your brain trust? You know, if you're like thinking about a new strategy or product or, you know, who are your friends in the industry that you reach out to probably, you know, more informally just to trade notes or bounce ideas off each other or like who are some brands that you really respect in different spaces that you um, try to take inspiration from? Meet a lot of great people. And I think, you know, for brands like leaning on your investor community, and we've got some really great investors is key. Like they are have aligned interests with you and you know hopefully you have great investors like I do and and a lot of times they're industry experts and so I think that's a good place to start I definitely suggest that I've done this for sure like any young entrepreneurs or any entrepreneurs find a couple mentors or partners that you really respect and trust like Ray Dalio talks about who I love talks about the credibility of advisors. And I think he says, like, try to find someone in the best case scenario that's done it once before, or in a good scenario, twice is the best three times like the best case. And so I think when you look at advisors, you can kind of look at that, okay, this person's been there, done that, chances are, they're going to have really good input for you, and then listen to them. So that's pretty interesting. And then I guess just thinking back to like, you know, what you were saying about your team and the importance of execution, do you use that as a paradigm or filter when you're hiring people as well? Or are there key things that you look from a culture or attitude perspective when you're bringing people onto the team, regardless of what function it is? For sure. I mean, I'm a pretty all in kind of guy. And I look for folks that are really passionate about what they do and are going to get passionate about the opportunity, whatever it is. And I think when you look at folks on our team, like we all have hot water running through our veins. We're all thinking about it all the time. And we're really passionate about the company and doing great work. And so that's like a prerequisite for me. 
And then I think, you know, you find that in types of folks that are energetic and are problem solvers. And I think that's another key aspect. And I think lastly, like people that take pride in what they do, like we talked about a high level of execution. You look for those folks that just like want to do great work and they enjoy that. So those are a couple of key things. And, you know, frankly, like people that just don't meet those criterias or criteria are probably not going to be a good fit for the company. They're probably not going to enjoy it. We're not going to enjoy, you know, working together. So it's kind of a win-win when you can like filter out and find people that, that fit those guidelines. Yeah, got it. Okay. So as you guys have grown, have you gone back to focusing on that on-premise market or do you plan to dedicate resources to that? And if so, what kinds of channels in on-premise are interesting to you? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. And we definitely have in fact, I was just talking about, I was in, took a little holiday over the new year, which we could talk about. I also think it's super important for anyone in the startup world. It can be a grind, like got to take the time to refresh and keep yourself sharp. But anyway, I took a little ski holiday on my snowboard and went up to Montana and we're on the menu at all of those bars and restaurants where we went and working super well. And it was really cool to see us on those menus and literally on the slopes. I was, of course, drinking a can of pop water and had multiple people come up and say like, oh, I had a couple of those last night or I've been meaning to try that brand. So yeah, we're working our way back to the on-premise space and we find it works in a lot of areas, you know, whether it's a a high-end dining opportunity or experience. I think there's a lot of consumers looking for that kind of non-alc beverage to enjoy with their dinner or it's a bar and coming after, you know, a long day of, you know, skiing or sporting or, or whatever it is on the lake and you just want something refreshing to enjoy with your buddies. So it works in a pretty diverse way. We've also done some testing and worked with a couple of companies to see like how the product performs against competitors in, in like that bar scenario. And we were really, it, it validated what we thought over saw really strong data and they've been able to use that to to expand the business within that kind of like bar and restaurant uh, space. Yeah, it's you know, it's pretty interesting. I imagine that some of these on-premise locations, you know, whether it's a ski slope or a college or university or something would be really supportive of you and people choosing your product. Like a ski slope doesn't necessarily want people drinking a ton of beer and hitting the slopes again. You know, there's a lot that can go wrong there. Like colleges and universities in general, I think, are pretty in favor of people finding, you know, healthy alternatives to drinking quite as much as a lot of us did, myself included, when they were in college. Do you find any of that eagerness when you're talking to the buyers, the administrations there where they're like, yeah, we want this product and we also want to work with you to figure out how we can really get people to try it out? You know, we really focus on like our product and the quality and the like consumer trends what people are enjoying and i think like so we focus a little bit more on that selling angle and we see that works i think whether it's a consumer that's abstaining or just moderating and drinking waters in between their beers like i think that message is resonating with bar and restaurant owners the other one that works really well and we're seeing is like the grab and go cooler when you go into a cafe talked about that kind of lunchtime opportunity that is like a huge opportunity is working really well for us. Got it. Great. And yeah, I think another question I wanted to ask is, what's your vision for the brand overall? What do you see happening in the next couple of years or what's your dream for Hopwater? Yeah, I mean, I think we, as I talked about, have a long runway. I would build this into a billion dollar brand. And I think we've got, you know, years and years, if not decades of runway. So 
I think we're pretty focused now on executing the opportunity in front of us. You know, as much as the brand's grown, we're still quite small compared to the universe of retail opportunities out there. So we're pretty focused on executing what's in front of us. But, you know, I think there's a long runway. I mean, you could think of like from an innovation standpoint, there's a ton more to do in this adult beverage space. There's a ton to do in functional. So while we're really focused on just executing what's in front of us, I think there's a long runway both from a consumer standpoint and a product standpoint. And then lastly, I'll mention on that, like we really believe in consumer-led innovation. So we're constantly talking to our consumer and getting feedback from our consumer. What do they want from us? Where are their drinking habits? And how can we provide a great product for them that supports that going forward? I think that's what will give us a long life as a brand. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And at what point would a brand like yours start to think about international opportunities? Has that already come across your radar or have you thought about when that could make sense for your brand and you know how you could approach something like that? For sure. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely something that we've talked about a lot and, and we've explored. And I think there are some more intuitive kind of you know international markets. You talked about some of them that are a little bit more developed or not. You know, it's a tough question because it can... While some of those markets can be really attractive, it can also be a bit of a distraction. And there's packaging requirements, there's labeling requirements, there's regulatory requirements. And the U.S. is a massive country, like we talked about. Our ACV, uh, the number of stores that we're in relative to what we could be in, is still relatively small. So every time that conversation comes up, we typically go back to, there's a lot more to do in our backyard. Let's kind of stay focused. So you also start to splinter your resources when you go into, you know, into other markets or other countries and, and you can kind of like dilute things easily and then you leave the door open for competitors. So it's something we talk about, but I think it's a decision that needs to be very carefully evaluated. It is not just free revenue that's in the other country. There are negative trade-offs. Yeah. And, and just your resources that you have to deploy for that, whether while there's still so much headroom in the US market, I think, you know, it's been a interesting past couple of years also in the beer space. Like I know just a lot of beer distributors were impacted this year, obviously, by things like the decline in sales of Bud Light and pretty eagerly looking around in the market for additional non-ALK products, I would say, that they could pick up. So you probably saw you probably saw a lot of interest coming your way from distributors you might not have expected to hear from looking to expand their offerings, things like hop water obviously being a nice complement to their portfolio, way to drive incremental growth for them. Yeah, we've, we've got some amazing distribution partners. And, and to your point, you know, we've been pleasantly surprised at some of the reception that we've gotten from pretty hardcore beer distributors that that are looking for non-out products. And frankly, working with our distributors is like one of my favorite things about the business. You get out into the trade and you know, many of these distributors are family owned. They're just like great people. And you can sit down, you can crack a hot water or a beer with them, you know, have a conversation, look across the table have a handshake and make commitment and build the business together. And it's kind of mutually beneficial. And I, I love that. It's like one of, again, like one of my favorite things to do about building the business. And we're fortunate to have some like really incredible distribution partners. Amazing. All right. So um, Jordan, as we kind of end up here, is there anything else that you want to share um, about you or hop water with everybody. I know you had mentioned the extra dry hopped product that's launching as well. Anything else people should know about? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. Yeah. So the double hopped product is newly out. You can get it on our website exclusively now. That's one of my favorite recent innovations. I talked earlier about consumer led innovation. And, you know, that product came about because we talk to and listen to our consumers. And if we didn't do that, I think we would have missed out on that opportunity. We 
asked our consumers, like, what else would you like to see from us? And those kind of hophead consumers said, like, we love your current product. And I'd love something that was like palette wrecking that was even hoppier. We wouldn't deliver it on that. And that's what the double hop product is. So it's it's a hop water base. And then we use the same amount of hops as are used in a craft IPA through a cold dry hopping process. And when you taste that, you get really the aroma of a beer and hops. And it is, it's definitely the closest to a beer that we've created. And the consumer reception was like incredibly positive for it. So yeah, how close does it get? Yeah, that's really what I was curious about is like, you know, how close is this going to get in profile to like a Heineken Zero or something like that? Yeah. So like, we're never trying to be exactly a non-op beer. We'd make a non-op beer if we wanted to do that. Like we always wanted to approach things a bit differently and you don't have the malt notes and whatnot that you have in a beer. So it's not going to be exactly like a beer, but you definitely get the big hoppy notes that you would get in a beer and especially maybe a lighter beer. So it's definitely in the same family, but I think one of the things like some of those beer recipes have been perfected over hundreds of years. It's like pretty hard to do exactly that with a non-op beer. So our approach was like, look, let's just come at it from a totally different angle and create something that fills that occasion, but isn't trying to be exactly the same thing. Well, I love it. Be really interested to circle back with you and understand what the purchase and usage occasions for the double hopped versus some of your other products. Like, okay, people who are drinking it for a little more bite, is that because like, yeah, really, those are the people who are drinking it more like socially out at a bar or the evenings and they want something that's a little bit closer to an actual beer versus, oh no, actually, there are people who are just drinking that the same way kind of during the week and they just prefer just, I'd say a flavor with, you know, more body, more of the hop coming through in it. So we'll have to circle back with you and see a little bit more about that data um, in the future. For sure. It's part of the fun startup and beverage journey. We're always learning and evolving. Awesome. All right, Jordan, thank you so much for joining us on the Startup CPG podcast. This has been super interesting for me, mainly just because I wanted to know a lot more about the story behind this brand that I've just seen everywhere. Um, So thanks for sharing all of those learnings about the inception and a lot of the stuff along the way. Is there a good way for people to just kind of like keep stay tuned and keep learning more about Hopwater and you? Is it, you know, good to follow you on LinkedIn or what's the best way for people to keep getting the good news? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Startup CPG is one of the best organizations in the space. And it's a pleasure to be on. Obviously, you can find our products at local retailers. You can also get it on our website. And then as far as staying connected, yeah, LinkedIn's great. Feel free to DM me. I respond to the vast majority of my messages. So look forward to uh, connecting. All right. Great. Thanks, everybody. I hope everyone out there got as much from this as I did. And we will see you again next week. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast today, it would really help us out if you can leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I am Daniel Scharf. I'm the host and founder of Startup CPG. Please feel free to reach out or add me on LinkedIn. If you're a potential sponsor that would like to appear on the podcast, please email partnerships at startupcpg.com. And reminder to all of you out there, we would love to have you join the community. You can sign up at our website, startupcpg.com to learn about our webinars, events, and Slack channel. If you enjoyed today's music, you can check out my band. It's the Super Fantastics on Spotify Music. On behalf of the entire Startup CPG team, thank you so much for listening and your support. See you next time.